Hello, and welcome to the latest RevDem Rule of Law podcast. My name is Oliver Garner. Our guest today is Professor Andras Shayo. Andras is a professor at the Central European University, a senior research fellow in the CEU Democracy Institute, and formerly he was Hungary's judge at the European Court of Human Rights. Our discussion today will focus on a CEUDI working paper recently published titled Militant Rule of Law and Not So Bad Law. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. My pleasure. To start, could you outline for our listeners exactly how your concept of not so bad law can be distinguished from the evil law that was the subject of academic debate after the fall of the Third Reich? And is not so bad law specific to liberal regimes or can it also arise in liberal democratic orders? All right. So uh, uh, evil law was a concept uh, developed by Gustav Radbruch in particular after World War II because he just couldn't figure out how to deal with the Nazi legal regime or the leftovers of that regime and the consequences given the uh, positive legal positivist framework uh, because as he understood within the positivist framework law is law and it has to be obeyed and that's the end of the story uh, and he had to create a category which is still law in a sense but it's so evil that it can be disregarded. So mm -hmm. that's the point of departure. And uh, because this was related to a very specific uh, historical situation, not unique, but, but special, legal theory was not particularly interested after this uh, uh, post-war situation in uh, imperfect legal and political regimes, mm -hmm. and they moved into a, a much more theoretical uh, discussion, basically disregarding the quality of the law. It was enacted more perhaps democratically, that was not decisive, but it was a, a, a system taken for granted, and its validity was taken for granted. Mm -hmm. So everything outside evil law from the legal perspective, was accepted as law. Uh, it's true that uh, perhaps because of the Soviet Union or perhaps some other uh, regimes, uh, Hart, who was the, the genius of, of legal positivism at, at that time, I think it's true even today, uh, he was very much concerned of, of systems which are not okay, but he considered this to be a problem outside the legal system. It was a moral system, and he said, yes, you can resist it. He, he has certain lines where he considers this to be a moral duty, but was not a problem for the lawyer, for those who apply the law. And, and working, he, he just was even less interested because he assumed that that whatever we have is, is just made for heroic uh, judges and they can uh, handle the, the, the situation. So for very different reasons, imperfect systems were more or less left out. There were exceptions. Uh, David Dysonhaus, for example, he came, of course, from South Africa. Mm -hmm. he, 
he was there, I think he even served or, or ran away from military service during the apartheid. So he had a first-hand experience of what can go wrong with a legal system, even if it's formally more or less uh, created in an appropriate way. Now, to cut this story short, it's obvious that predominant legal theory, especially of the positivist uh, nature, just was not interested and therefore not capable of handling imperfect legal systems, which I, I call uh, not so bad. I mean, not so bad as if it were evil, right? Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, imperfection is, I think, a normal phenomenon of all even decent legal systems. The question is how imperfect the system is. So not so bad law can be still rather inconvenient, very imperfect or imperfect. And that's probably the problem with, with illiberal uh, democracies or their legal systems where the law is actually used in a formally valid way in, in many instances to promote the undermining of the rule of law and by underlying or destroying the rule of law, uh, creating abuse and at the end of the road, some kind of despotism. So th these are the categories that I use in this article. I, I hope I managed to answer most of the questions related to yours, uh, your, your uh, invitation to discuss the matter. No, absolutely. And it seems that what you are looking to confront is a phenomenon that's really quite prevalent in the world. And so there are lots of practical applications. And yes, yes, that's true. And what is even worse, or what is really problematic, not even worse, but what is problematic, that lawyers, politicians, society is not ready to acknowledge the imperfection or the level of imperfection they have. They, uh, there is some kind of self-confidence here, uh, believing that the institutions and legal mechanisms in force are capable of, of uh, correction. And anyway, there's not much to, to correct. And I think this self-confidence, which is of course necessary for legitimacy purposes, may backfire. And it does backfire in these days. And that brings us on to your idea of militant rule of law as an antidote. And the concept of militant democracy may be more familiar to our listeners. You distinguish militant rule of law as concerning merely the vigorous application of extant rule of law precepts and standards, whereas military de militant democracy entails limiting certain fundamental rights. Does this, does this mean that militant rule of law is the exclusive preserve of the judiciary? Or do you think that executives and legislatures also have a role to play? such as through the promulgation of rule of law restoration bills after the end of illiberal regimes? I, I'm convinced that this is not uh, something limited to uh, the judiciary. In a way, they seem to have undertaken this role as a role of last resort. But it, it of course, uh, for example, if you look at what's going on in Germany in the last two or three months, when they became afraid of the uh, alternative for Deutschland, the, the right, very, very right wing party, 
they started to look into legal mechanisms, what to do with majority, what are the powers of the majority in parliament uh, to limit it. Uh, so this is bordering, of course, militant uh, democracy because it entails some, uh, or allegedly entails some uh, rights restrictions, but it's, it's primarily just trying to look into a more uh, vigorous, systematic application of existing uh, rules and mm -hmm. also the introduction of new rules which do not necessarily mean rights restriction but much more a a, a certain uh, more uh, aggressive and i use the word aggressive in the american sense more aggressive use of uh, existing uh, uh, legal possibilities but that requires legislation mm -hmm. or executive action. Exactly. So we see that this can engage political action as it, well. It, it requires political action uh, or the action of the political branches. And the judiciary can a little bit encourage them. And at the end of the day, when there is some uh, kind of capture not full capture but some level of capture then the judiciary can be more uh, more active by uh, various techniques of legal interpretation which exist already but they are not used mm. well we may have seen an example last week of this kind of executive action as we saw the european commission issued an infringement action against hungary for its sovereignty protection act do you think that your argument also applies to international and supranational courts? And have the Court of Justice of the EU and the European Court of Human Rights been engaging in militant rule of law in finding infringements by Poland uh, of its obligations under the EU treaties and the European Convention of Human Rights? Well, I, I think that uh, both courts, with enormous reluctance, moved in this direction of militant rule of law in a way they are like this uh well everybody everyone quotes this uh, line from moliere that uh, that uh, monsieur jordan is told that he's talking in prose which is a great surprise to this less educated uh, bourgeois but uh in fact he did did use prose for for all his expressions and i think this is what happens to the course probably they they might be aware of much more uh, the, uh, of what they are doing but they do not want to recognize that so they pretend that everything is just following existing precedents it was always there which is a perfectly normal trick of the judiciary for legitimacy purposes Mm -hmm. So one day they, they find the European Court of Justice found in a completely banal uh, Portuguese case that judicial independence is enforceable on the basis of, of a certain sentence which until that moment never triggered such interpretation or at least never triggered direct applicability. And they said, it's, it's there, you can read it, nothing new here, just move on. Which, of course, was clear to everyone that 
that's just a, a belief of a very radical reinterpretation of the text. Then, of course, there are scholars who claim that this was always the original intent of, of the treaty, blah, blah, blah. Sure, that's what they have to do. Hmm. Uh, but uh, because it, it increases legitimacy. But reality is that they shifted into a radical reinterpretation. It's not in violation of the rule of law. Such interpretation was within, on the horizon. They didn't use it for a long time. And there were many other cases following that approach. Likewise, with the uh, European Court of Human Rights in, in these cases of the judiciary. Now, the interesting thing is, interesting, is always an expression to say that it is troubling. So let's let me be frank, which is another way of of saying something different. Uh, it is not this idea of of militancy is not extended to other areas. It's really at the moment limited to uh, judicial independence. Yes, and I think it there is a need to apply similar. Uh, methodology in in strictly rights related or even interest related matters mm -hmm. um, so that's we are not yet there and the problem is always that there is always a decalage there's always a delay and sometimes what happens it, uh, is irreversible, like it happened with the Hungarian judiciary uh, 10 years ago. The European Court of Justice did not intervene, or it did intervene in a formalistic ma manner, which did not stop this erosion of the independence of the judiciary here. We may have seen some example of values enforcement going beyond the rule of law and judiciary in, for example, the infringement action against Poland for the so-called Lex Tusk, uh, in which the value of democracy was um, presented in the commission's press release. So do you think that the court and the commission could be emboldened to look to enforce Article 2 values directly in infringement actions rather than looking for hooks such as the right of effective legal protection in the treaties? It, it is very, what I'm going to say is, is a repetition of what some political scientists would claim. It's not a legal analysis. Yeah. Uh, so I, I feel a little bit uncertain, and that's why I rely on authorities. <laughs> uh, this is a very political choice. If, if you apply to uh, uh, certain countries, in principle, you should apply to other countries. And because it's decided by politicians who may feel vulnerable in one or another matter, which they consider, for example, part of a national identity or constitutional identity or democratic tradition or what's not, they might be might run into into trouble. So, and once again, because this is a, a political consideration, this aspect of the political consideration is very important and influential. So I, I am not sure how far it goes. Um, for example, when it, 
when uh, the commission was a little bit fed up with lack of improvement in Bulgaria, they were very close to, to, to close the book and say that the judiciary or the administration of justice in Bulgaria is now okay and, and we will not continue with monitoring uh, Bulgaria. And then again, for a political reason, they changed or they were forced to change their mind. So it's, it's, there are too many suspects and not only the usual suspects. And that's what limits this kind of uh, extension. Mm. Talking of usual suspects, we've seen increasing evidence of the United Kingdom, um, at least flirting with a rule of law backsliding. And a possible example today of not so bad law, or perhaps simply bad law from the perspective of the rule of law, is the UK's safety of Rwanda bill. Jeff King has recently suggested that the UK courts could engage in narrow textual interpretation that seeks to exclude the legislative intention of declaring that Rwanda must be regarded as safe. And this struck me as perhaps resembling your arguments for rule of law militancy. The bill instructs courts to conclusively treat Rwanda as a safe country, and it limits the scope of challenges to limited cases. You state in your paper that where brute force in the form of disciplinary action against judges pervades the judicial system, we are veering dangerously close to evil law. Do you think that the safety of Rwanda bill is veering this way? I, I I very much hope that the Rwanda situation, I mean, not the situation in Rwanda, but the situation in the UK regarding Rwanda, is, is not a part of a systemic uh, erosion of the rule of law. So if you take this in isolation, I, I've seen the latest uh, report, which I think was prepared either for the House of Lords or Select Committee, and that is very negative, uh, even uh, after the legislation, the, the reservations seem to be uh, important. But again, it's, it's not, hopefully not sy systemic. And therefore, it's, it's a politically motivated bad piece of law, but not resulting in making UK law into a, a bad law as such, or certainly not into a very bad law or legal system. Mm -hmm. Having said that, uh, perhaps I would like to give use this as an example how a militant rule of law works. So I emphasize in other writings the, that uh, there are certain techniques of interpretation which do exist in in many jurisdictions. Uh, a, a seriously taken uh, reasonableness analysis is one uh, extended beyond uh, extended to to uh, non fundamental rights related legislation, and the second one is uh, intent analysis. So I. I it, to, to my mind, where and again, it's not my invention. Ely uh, wrote about this fifty or or more years ago, and and many others. So where the the intent is clearly cutting from what politically what is politically presented, where the intent is different on the basis of consequences of what 
the law promises, then you have to look at the consequences and determine the intent on the basis of the consequences. Mm -hmm. And of course, there can be also, uh, you know, uh, red flags, I mean, parliamentary debate. I think in the Rwanda case, it's very clear that, I mean, it, it seems to me, it's not very clear, it seems to me that there was a, a, an intent of the legislation to circumvent uh, uh, a reality that they were aware of. So they, they it, it is a little bit like when uh, Boris Johnson abused the prerogative and the Supreme Court found that uh, this, this is uh, unconstitutional, although they didn't enter in that case into intent analysis because there was no need to reach the result. So this, this is one way how militancy makes the difference. It'll be fascinating to see if this does come before the courts, whether they do indeed engage in such techniques of interpretation. At a certain point, you are forced to you really have no other way to, to, to come out. They could certainly rely on, again, on the European or the Human Rights Act as interpreted in Strasbourg, but uh, at a certain point, that may not be enough. So judicial inventions are really uh, hard to predict. <laughs> On the topic of prediction of potential judicial interventions, for our final question, I thought I'd ask you, how do you see militant rule of law techniques being used to restore the rule of law in Poland and Hungary? Do you think such techniques could be used to overcome legislative maneuvers such as the new Sovereignty Protection Act in Hungary, and also any potential presidential vetoes of laws made by the new parliament in Hungary, uh, in Poland. Do you think this can avoid claims of judicial activism, and where might the limits of such interpretive creativity lie? First of all, uh, these uh, categories of, of deferentialism and activism, they may help a little bit in, in scholarly analysis, but basically these became a, a hammer to to or, or to, to hammer but not for a nail i mean so anyway they, they are used to castigate the judiciary you are too activist you take away power from the people i i don't think that this is very helpful and it's not even for scholarly purposes a perfect analytical tool it's a battle cry mm -hmm. so i don't think that being activist or not would make a fundamental difference. I don't see at the moment in Hungary a, a judiciary that I don't see a, a, a real interest at the highest echelons of the judiciary here to uh, to to look into the validity of enactments. In Poland, that is different. It's a very divided judiciary and. Uh, the executive, as we have seen, took a very militant uh, rule of law approach. So they also parliament, because it started, it started with the position that the that the amnesty granted by the president to these two, to a minister and and vice minister, uh, earlier is. Uh, Void because there is a judicial decision 
and then this enables parliament to to say that they have never been uh, parliamentarians, so you don't have to waive immunity, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's a very radical interpretation, uh, and it is a matter of interpretation because the prevailing theory is that in Poland uh, and in general, which I doubt, pardon cannot be uh, procedural; it can be only uh, it can apply only to final convictions, which of course. Is, is is not always the case. If you take the Czech Republic, uh, Klaus granted amnesty to, to many, many uh, people who were under investigation finally for what they did under the pretext of privatization. And that was a procedural amnesty, just a mass scale amnesty to a political elite. So it was a big thing by the way, justified by uh, human rights, because uh, Klaus said that it is uh, contrary to uh, to Article 6 of Convention, because the proceedings last too long, which is true, it's a violation of uh, Article 6. So anyway, the length of proceed proceedings, that's that term. So you, the point of departure is how you interpret presidential amnesty. It can be interpreted in both directions here, and the militant interpretation was preferred. And once you, and so you are on a legal track, on a, perhaps on a radical one, although the claim is that most scholars all the time in Poland were of this view and never happened. So you, you can use more traditional arguments. But anyway, the choice was a, milit, a more militant, a restorative uh, measure. And after that, each and every step moved, all the pieces fall together on that basis. But that, that was really a, a militant application. Now, what will happen after the Constitutional Tribunal will interfere or intervene? That will be really the, the proof uh, it, by eating the pudding. So what kind of taste that pudding will have, I, I, I don't want to taste, but someone has to. <laughs> Well, we'll be following those developments very closely at RevDem as these cases come. And thank you so much, Anders, for joining us today and for your observations. And I'd encourage all of our listeners to follow RevDem on X, Facebook, LinkedIn and Instagram to continue these debates. Thank you so much again. Anders. Thank you. Thank you.